Back with you here on the Punch Out, the 4th of March, 2021. Very happy to be back with you here, as we always are happy to be with you here on this Thursday and every day, Monday through Friday, on the Punch Out. Plenty of stuff for you here today, including right to work failing in the Montana legislature, a bill for right to work that is the country of Nigeria in serious turmoil. But before we get to either of those two very important stories, we're going to be talking about Jackson, Mississippi, where who knows when the majority of people will have clean water. Well, Jackson, Mississippi still does not have a working clean water system. Over two weeks after a major cold snap caused utilities to fall and fail all across the South. The 80% black city of 160,000 is under a boil water warning, facing dozens of broken water mains, as many as 35 breakages as of this morning. The mayor of Jackson, Chokwe Lumumba, stated that the pipes are so old and decrepit that they're like peanut brittle, he said. And oftentimes when they try to fix one water main break, then it breaks another pipe or the same pipe in a different location because the pipes themselves are so brittle, just working on them can cause uh, these, these water main breaks in a major way. Thousands of people just have no water at all. And many, of course, are forced to either, as the advisory says, boil water or, of course, buy bottled water. And there are, of course, organizations that are donating water and trying to, to distribute them, but it's just not nearly enough. Casey, a drummer, so 27-year-old middle school teacher there in Jackson, told the Guardian newspaper that she had spent as much as $40 a day in order to have enough clean water to do the things she needs to do, and that now she has decided to just, quote, take in less fluids to limit the costs. And there's no timeline. No timeline for a full restoration of water there in Jackson, which really just underscores the deep challenges of the water system there. Uh, very, very deep. It's estimated that there's roughly $2 billion worth of work that needs to happen to make that possible. And Jackson has raised sales taxes to do some repairs, but functionally, is it truly able to address the issue on its own? 30% of the city lives in poverty. The per capita income, just $21,000. So that's $21,000 per person, per capita income. 30% of the city living in poverty. So obviously what's being uh, revealed here by this cold snap is not just a singular problem or an emergency, but the deeper underlying problems. And it's not just Jackson either. Really the whole state of Mississippi is terrible water infrastructure. The American Society of Civil Engineers gave the state of Mississippi a D grade, a D in terms of water quality there. The ASCE noted that almost all funding for water systems in the state comes from user fees and federal grants. Those are federal grants, not state grants there. So 
What ends up happening is that the water systems through the user fees and some of these federal grants, it's, it's enough to just maintain the basic running of the system, but not make real investments. Certainly not the type of investments you'd need to withstand all sorts of major extreme weather events. Now, one thing that the ASCE notes about this is that it would require $241 million a year to remedy the issue. Let's remember that now. $241 million a year uh, was what they need to invest to make it all work in terms of the water there. Now, in terms of what's available, they also note that only about $100 million a year is available. So the amount of funding, $141 million less than what's needed. Now, you may be interested to know that just a few years ago, Mississippi passed its largest tax cut ever. And that tax cut cut corporate taxes in such a way that the amount of money that would be lost by the state of Mississippi each year is $245 million. $241 million a year to fix the pipes. They cut the taxes and lost $245 million a year in the state of Mississippi. So it just gives you a sense. This is a man-made problem here. One news report from 2019 in the state notes that all told, quote, more than $700 million in tax cuts has been passed in recent years, with the beneficiary of the bulk of those cuts being corporations, end quote. So self-inflicted problem, really. And ASCE also notes that a few smaller, wealthier enclaves there in the state of Mississippi do have good, clean water because they're able to generate more from user fees because people make more money. So really, when you look at it, it's just a case of the rich letting everyone else suffer because they'd rather not pay higher taxes. And now the residents of Jackson and other parts of Mississippi are suffering because of it with no end in sight. <laughs> Nigeria's northwestern state of Zamfara is now under a curfew. There's a no-fly zone over the state. There's a ban on mining. Gold mining's an issue there. And all of this comes after an armed disruption of a so-called celebration yesterday for 279 girls that had been kidnapped from their boarding school last week. It's the second mass abduction of school kids in Nigeria in 2021. At least three people were shot, although it's not 100% clear as of the time we are going to press, so to speak, who exactly did the firing. But the crisis in Zamfara State in Northwest Nigeria is indicative of what's becoming a broader slide into deep insecurity all across the North and Central parts of the country as multiple insurgencies of, of you know, multiple insurgencies of multiple different types. You've got conflicts between herders, cattle herders, and farmers, settled farmers. Then you've got the corrupt elites and security forces. And all of that is colliding in the midst of intense poverty and underdevelopment. Now, the president of Nigeria... President Buhari has surged troops into Zamfara, claiming he's going to get the situation under control as residents are complaining there of the rise of kidnapping in the state. Now, the situation in Nigeria, it's very complex. And, you know, usually it's just presented in the Western media as a bunch of terrible things happening over there, uh, as if it has no connection to, to what's the, the policies of Western nations, which is not true. But it is complex. But the easiest way to really understand what's happening there is to root it all in the lack of any real development. And then you combine that with the impact of climate change. Now, in the most basic sense here, northern Nigeria in general, deeply impoverished uh, part of that country and the sort of really broader Sahelian region that cuts across a number of neighboring countries also suffering from many of these poverty and development issues. The Sahel is basically the area just south of the Sahara Desert. Uh, 
Now, the elites in Nigeria since independence, just about since independence, have preferred to just take the profits from resource extraction all for themselves, and it trickled down very little to anyone else. So you've got these big, big, huge country, many, many people, uh, but across the whole country, there's very little development, very little jobs, very little improvement of people's lives. And that just gets worse and worse, compounded and compounded year after year, decade after decade. Now, you take this intense poverty, total lack of development, and you combine that with the fact that traditionally, there's always been some competition for land and for water between settled farmers and herders. Now, that's been made much, much worse because of the desertification from climate change. That is, the Sahara keeps moving further south, basically. And that has made the conflict between farmers and herders become extremely intense and actually push into the center of the country. The actual the Boko Haram insurgency in the northern part of the country, and we'll get to that, which is well known internationally. You've probably heard of it. But you just think about Boko Haram and everything you might have heard about them. Well, the conflict between settled farmers and people who are herders of cattle is actually four times as violent as the Boko Haram uh, insurgency there. So it gives you a tense, uh, a sense of how deadly this is. And, and in fact, you know, really the cattle herdsmen seem to have the most deadly of all those militias. And so in this overall vacuum of power type situation that you have, you have a huge amount of poverty. Again, you have very little underdevelopment. You have these elites who are just trying to take money. So there's not much of a, of a, of a state security structure or anything like that, right, as it were. So you have a vacuum of power, so to speak. Groups of various sorts emerge to take advantage. Now, some, of course, are just criminal gangs. And, you know, some of them, I'm sure, are just doing whatever they're doing as these criminal gangs. But it has to be said, there's some pretty shady relations between some of these northern elite officials that are, you know, paying these ransom and the kidnapping gangs themselves. Maybe some overlap there. Many politicians all across Nigeria, in fact, uh, but certainly here are well known for using armed groups of their own to try to maintain their own status quo. Of, again, taking all the resources, making themselves rich, leaving everyone else to live in poverty. Now, Boko Haram. And there's another offshoot of Boko Haram that is a part of the Islamic State. Uh, there's also several other Al-Qaeda-affiliated groups in the same area here. But they are all trying to present an alternative to Nigeria's central government, an alternative of sorts, you should say. They're promoting various Islamic emirates, as it were. And the Islamic State affiliate in particular has been trying to really steal a march on the other uh, various quote-unquote insurgent groups there by trying to develop commerce in the Lake Chad area of Nigeria, Niger, and Chad. And that, of course, raises a whole other issue is that many of the populations in these areas traditionally have roots in various parts of the region that aren't always in the same country now because of the colonial borders, which gives the uh, many of the groups that are pushing back against these central governments some sense of legitimacy, right? Because they can present themselves as fighting against a status quo that not only is failing to solve people's problems in the here and now in terms of poverty and so on and so forth, but has a certain lack of legitimacy given the... Uh, let's say, lack of a match between colonial borders and colonial realities and the historical movements of ethnic groups and peoples all across Western Africa. So when you put all that together, anyone promising any sort of easy fix is certainly lying to you. And of course, the president of Nigeria surging these government troops as if that's some of a fix. Well, that's not going to make much of a difference. I mean, just look at it in this one small capsule view, for instance. So there's a mining ban, as I mentioned earlier, in Zamfara, and that's because there are gold mines there that many of these various groups control and use for money. But if the army is to say, retake them, they will claim, well, yes, we've made this big gain in security. But what will happen? 
They'll just hand them over to local elites who won't change anything at all. And of course, we'll keep the same status quo the same, which will do nothing more than further fuel the violence that's happening. And not to mention the Nigerian military itself heavily supported by the United States and the United Kingdom, by the way, is well known for its just wanton brutality when they're doing these various anti-insurgency moves that they uh, present to the world as trying to get a hold of all these problems. So when you really boil down, the real culprit is the neo-colonial status quo. It's perpetuated by the West that has done everything possible to prevent African liberation movements from breaking with the resource extraction-only style of economy that lay behind so much of this misery. And that's worth remembering when the news just portrays what's happening in Nigeria, in West Africa more broadly, in Africa in general, as some sort of savage extreme violence far removed from us over here. Well, it may be far removed geographically, but it's certainly not geopolitically. Well, we told you earlier this week that the Montana legislature was considering a bill on whether or not to make that state a right-to-work state. Now, that effort failed Tuesday in a 62 to 38 vote as hundreds of trade unionists flooded the Capitol in defense of their rights. C.J. Schultz, the president of the United Association of Plumbers and Pipe Fitters, Local 30 in Billings, Montana, told a local news station, quote, we're major proponents of good wages, good working wages. These bills are designed to hurt us. They're union bashing. And for those who maybe don't know, a right-to-work bill basically means that you don't have to join a union, even if basically everyone else in your workplace does. So it allows open shops, not closed shops. But C.J. Schultz is right, by the way, in terms of being a proponent of good wages and that right-to-work laws will hurt workers, not help them. The research shows it. The median hourly wage of union workers in Montana is $22.85. That's compared to $16.95 for non-union workers. Since the Great Recession, median wages have grown faster in Montana by 12.9%, by the way, since 2007, than in the neighboring right-to-work states where wages have only grown about 8.2% from 2007. So not only are you making money, but your wages are growing faster. And as proponents of right-to-work laws say, well, it's some big job killer. Well, that's also fake. As the Economic Policy Institute points out, quote, private sector job growth in Montana has outpaced that of its right-to-work neighbors. From 2007 to 2019, employment grew 10% in Montana compared to 8.6% in the neighboring right-to-work states, end quote. So Montana, not a right-to-work state. It's got higher wages, higher wage growth, and better overall job growth than the surrounding states that are right-to-work states. So obviously having unions doesn't destroy jobs. Had the right-to-work bill passed, the average union worker in Montana would have lost about $1,100 in income, at least, perhaps more. In right-to-work states, in fact, both union and non-union workers make about 3% less than in non-right-to-work states, which is notable because it shows how unions raise the wage floor for all workers when they are truly allowed to organize. And this win comes alongside two others this week. The Montana legislature also rejected bills that would have uh, prohibited public employers from deducting union dues from their workers' paychecks and made it easier for public employees to leave their union. But again, both of those bills failed. So this week at least, I think we can say that in Montana, workers got some wins. 
And that's going to do it for us here today on the Punch Out 3 for 2021. Don't forget tonight, as with every Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, the Freedom Side will be live on Breakthrough News. So again, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm your host for the Freedom Side. We will be on at BT Newsroom across all your social media platforms. But that will do it for us here today on the Punch Out for Breakthrough News.